Good morning, everybody, or afternoon, depending on where you are. It's August 4th. Welcome to the Vegetable Beat, a live weekly discussion during the growing season for vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. I'm your host, Katie King from Nebraska Extension. I am here with Bethany Pratt, agent for horticulture education at the University of Kentucky Extension, and Laura Stevens and Stephen Bartlett of Common Earth Gardens in Louisville, Kentucky. Today we'll be discussing the topic of producing culturally appropriate crops. We want to get your questions answered. If you are listening live via Zoom um, at glveg.net slash listen or Facebook at facebook.com slash veggiebeat. You can submit questions to the chat or Q&A box or as Facebook comments. And we will try to answer them as we go and save others for the end. Bethany, Laura, and Steven, thanks for joining us today. Um, I'd like each of you to share a little bit about what you do and maybe also have um, Laura talk a little bit about what Common Gardens is and does. So um, Bethany, do you want to start? Sure. Thanks for um, having us all here today. Um, My name is Bethany Pratt. I'm with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Education um, program here in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, Louisville is the largest county in the state of Kentucky and holds one-fifth of the entire state's population. Um, So cooperative extension here looks very different than um, a lot of my colleagues in a little more rural or um, peri-rural or peri-urban areas. Um, Here in Louisville, I work primarily with um, very small-scale farmers and gardeners. I support um, 10 different community gardens here in Louisville through a contract with our um, metro government and um, collaborate very closely with Common Earth Gardens on the community gardens, as well as the incubator training um, program. And that is a program to support um, new Americans, so folks who came to the United States um, as refugees or immigrants to restart farm businesses here in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, And that's a lot of what I do. And I'll let um, Laura and Stephen talk more about how we work together and other cool things they do. Great. Thanks, Bethany. Stephen, do you want to go next? Sure, thank you. Yeah, my name is Stephen Bartlett. Very happy to be here in this good panel. Um, yeah, I am a consultant with Common Earth Gardens, and um, I was one of the uh, early uh, staff persons for the RAP, the, the beginning of this program, which was the RAP program back in 2007, 2008. And uh, since that time, the program has expanded, continued to expand. And we have several hundred um, gardeners who are new Americans, we call them international farmers, and who are doing great productive work here in the city, um, and also now increasingly in nearby farms near the city. Um, and so, um, yeah, we're, we're um, I work uh, with a lot of urban ag groups. Um, I'm a farmer myself, but um, I uh, love being with the international farmers who, who bring not only their skills and knowledge about farming, but also um, a great cultural richness of the farm life and the farm communities where they come from. So it's it's really a joy to have these folks be able to settle and dig in and, and be able to produce for their families. And I think the topic of appro- appropriate, um, culturally appropriate food is very important. So I'm glad we're going to discuss that today. Thanks, Stephen. Laura, we'll hear from you next. Sure. 
Um, so my name is Laura Stevens. I am the program director for Common Earth Gardens and its sister program, Common Table. We're a program of Catholic Charities of Louisville. And um, like Stephen said, the program's been in operation since 2007. Um, I've been here for about seven and a half years now, um, first as the program coordinator and then moving into the program director position. Um, but Common Earth Gardens has almost 14 acres in production uh, throughout the city and surrounding areas. Uh, like Bethany said, most of those are community garden, um, gardens that are scattered throughout the city. Uh, we work with over 400 families and help support access to land to grow food. Um, a lot of the people who are coming to Louisville through the refugee resettlement program were originally farmers in their home country. And so we really support them in being able to continue doing that once they arrive here in Louisville, even if they're resettled and living in an apartment complex or um, another area where they have little access to green space. We want them to be able to continue being a farmer and having access to growing food, even if it's on a 30 by 30 square foot plot of land instead of several acres as they may be used to. Um, so, and then in addition to the community gardens, uh, we also co-facilitate an incubator training program. Uh, farm business training program with uh, Bethany at the extension office where we have currently have 14 farm teams that are learning to grow market or grow produce for market. Um, and so that's really a collaborative effort between, between all of us and supporting them and, and meeting their sales goals. Wow. That's uh, some really neat things going on there for sure. Well, so let's dive into a little bit more um, about these different programs and the collaborations going on with, um, common Earth and Extension there, um, and you have mentioned a little bit about um, working with refugees, um, and so can you maybe just to provide a little bit of background for this topic that we're going to talk about today, um, maybe Stephen, do you want to talk about um, just the evolution of the refugee populations, especially in that area? I'm sure there's um, other similar areas in the U.S. and, um, and the production of their um, culture's native crops. Sure, sure. As it happens, Louisville is a major resettlement city for um, people who have been forced to leave, you know, flee their countries and become refugees. Um, so we have two agencies that resettle um, refugees here, the Kentucky Refugee Ministries and Catholic Charities. And so we have, as a result, we have something like 150 languages in the public schools here uh, being spoken. We have a a lot of educational institutions that are devoted to helping, yes, you know, transition people into the English language, newcomer academy, etc. So we have a lot of um, wonderful diversity, cultural diversity here as a result of these resettlements. And um, what we discovered was uh, many of them were suffering, suffering greatly from lack of access to land, uh, especially elderly folks uh, who maybe were having trouble getting jobs that were appropriate for them. Uh, but have a wealth of uh, experience as farmers. And so the program, the original program, the RAP program, um, helped uh, get land access for probably it was about 60 or 70 or 80 families at the beginning. Um, and we made partnerships with uh, different like community gardens and with um, churches to, to get land access and then uh, work on water issues and all those things. So uh, gradually... You know, at first it was a very daunting uh, challenge to be able to work with uh, people speaking 
six, seven, eight different languages um, and trying to get them oriented to the seasonality that we experience, which is different from tropical agriculture and those kinds of challenges, um, as well as just the logistics of organizing um, these kind of community garden spaces. And so, yeah, it's been a learning experience from the beginning. Um, and I think uh, after there was a three-year grant that began the whole program, the RAP grant, and then there were additional grants that came after that. There were times where there were no grants. And uh, fortunately, Catholic Charities stepped in at one point to take it on as a program, which, which we're all very grateful for. And, um, and then I found myself back, back in the circle and seeing some of the same farmers from Somalia, from Congo, from Nepal, uh, well, Nepalese people from Bhutan, people from Myanmar, Burma. Um, and it's been just a wonderful uh, reunion, in effect, seeing them again um, and seeing that their families have, have grown and their children are very well adapted now to, to the culture and the language um, and being able to take part as help, you know, as helping with the marketing and other aspects of people's agricultural economy and their agricultural life. Um, so that's some of the evolution we've seen over the, over the last, what, 12, 13 years of the program. While Katie's working um, on that, what I'm happy to say, like Stephen gave us a great rundown. And when we look at access to land and gardens, that's probably one of the most important things for folks in Louisville's international community to help people transition in a meaningful way and bridge two cultures. Um, we see families, especially that have been in the community gardens for 10 or 15 years, their children have been a part of the garden and been able, those families have been able to maintain some of their, um, their food traditions as well as their agricultural traditions through accessing land. Um, recently, I got to place the son of um, one of our Nepalese gardeners in his own community garden plot. He's grown up and now wants a garden of his own. Um, and he wants to keep growing um, food that is important to him and his family and his community. And that was a really, really kind of special, special day when I got to meet him. Um, Cause there's kind of this, these, I guess what we call them first generation um, folks from our international community who are amazing bridges between cultures and are doing a wonderful job of honoring the cultures that they've come from, the knowledge of their parents and their grandparents, and but bringing that forward and kind of continuing it um, for themselves. So farming and agriculture has been such an amazing part of the resettlement story of folks here. And it's something that we're so happy to kind of help steward and facilitate um, as a part of that. I was about to ask about maybe some of the major challenges and opportunities for producing ethnically um, or um, culturally appropriate um, crops in your area. Um, so maybe Bethany, I, I'm happy to hear from all three of you on this. Um, maybe Bethany, do you wanna start? Sure, um, so some of the, the biggest kind of upfront challenges is just that piece of um, climate adaptation. Um, many of the folks who are moving to Louisville are coming from much warmer kind of tropical climates. Um, so navigating a place with four distinct seasons is, is an ongoing challenge for a lot of folks. And then now we're even seeing with climate change and climate change compiled with our urban heat island environment here in Louisville particularly, is even posing some additional challenges to our more experienced farmers here. Um, 
that piece is we're all kind of learning that one together, but we have the relationship to do that. Um, so that's been kind of one of the challenges. One of the really cool things um, for myself and maybe Laura and Steven too, is the fact that I've learned about, there are way more things that we can grow here than I even knew existed. Um, I think I learn way more from folks in our international farming community about crops that you can grow in Louisville than things that you cannot. Mm. Um, I'm a, I see, I learn about three different plants a year still. I've been in my position for six years now. And every year I'll walk out into a garden and be like, well, what's that? I don't know. Um, and so, and most of the time you learn what the crop is and the language of the gardener who's growing it. And then there's a whole lot of Googling and um, picture taking. And um, sometimes we can find a name for it in English. Sometimes it just doesn't exist, um, but we can figure out what plant family it's in. And then I can be able to support folks that way by just saying, oh, well, this is related to a cucumber, but it's, you know, but this is, this is the name of what it is in Bhutanese. Um, and that's kind of how we work together. Um, Lauren, Steven, what do you all have to add to that? I was going to say, I totally agree. It's so fun going out and walking through the plots and hearing from gardeners about the different things that they're growing and learning those new plants. And also, I think learning about different parts of the plant that are edible, um, that's something that was really new to me in starting this position and um, like learning, you know, a lot of our um, growers from like the Southeast Asia region will eat like sprouts or um, like the tender shoots from squash or um, sweet potato greens, of course, is a, is a big one. Um, just like hearing these different about these different parts of the plant that are edible too. And it's like, wow, I, I've been missing out this whole time. <laughs> so um, definitely also growing, learning a lot. Um, in yeah, our, the variety in of our flavors area. is really oh, exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, speaking of flavors, so um, flavors and also foods that are used for medicinal purposes, um, mm -hmm. there's quite a rich knowledge of all kinds of medicinal uses of food crops and crops that are um, that are eaten, but they're eaten with specific health health goals in mind, such as the bitter gourd or the bitter bitter cucumber, which is a very popular, not only in Southeast Asia, but also Africans, some Africans have, have used it as well. Um, and it's, I think there's a huge potential for, for, for businesses to rise up in the future to create, you know, healthy foods, healthy medicines from some of the crops that they're, they're producing for high blood pressure. Bitter gourd is amazing for diabetes. It's also very effective. It's a very bitter tasting, uh, vegetable. But, um, you know, but I think Americans can learn something by even just tasting it. Because Laura and I were over the other day and tasting some uh, bitter melon. And, and then after we ate a little bit of it, Laura says, I kind of want more of it. And I, and I was thinking something in our bodies knows that this is good for us. Some, our organs are telling us this can this can help us in our health, in our digestion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the other thing, one other aspect I thought is really interesting to me was we noticed in the early years, we observed that some of the, the weeds were being um, selected for protection and for even weeding around weeds. What, what we would consider weeds like lamb's quarters, like uh, purslane, uh, like amaranth, uh, were now being identified by the, uh, by the international farmers as valuable crops and were being allowed to grow as their main crops in some of their plots. Um, and 
what we discovered was these weeds, so-called weeds, uh, were actually more nutritious, more drought hardy, um, and actually easier to grow, much easier to grow than, let's say, growing spinach or kale or whatever. Um, so, yeah, some of these, um, a lot of crops that we don't know are very valuable um, are, are recognized right away, and they, they, they're familiar and, and used to eating them. So that's been a new – now in my community garden uh, where I work, um, you know, lamb's quarters is one of our crops now, and it, I don't have to plant it each year. We just weed among some of them and then use them as greens, you know. Yeah, that's so interesting what we can learn from uh, different cultures. Um, so I think I want to talk a little bit about marketing um, because – you you have a lot you're working with refugees that have been farmers and i'm assuming they're selling their crops at farmers markets or other avenues so maybe talk a little bit about that and maybe laura you could talk a little bit about consumer education and just um how maybe that um how the marketing is impacted by that as well um because i feel like there has to be that piece has to be considered as well um, in something like this. So um, maybe you could start with that. And then um, Stephen and Bethany, you guys could um, talk a little bit more about some of the marketing challenges and opportunities. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So we, um, we as Common Earth Gardens, serve to, um, you know, highlight and uplift the international farmers that we're working with. And so we assist them in um, accessing those local market channels and talk about the different types of markets that are available, whether it's the farmer's market or doing a CSA or selling wholesale to, to restaurants or catering companies. And so um, we provide that training to growers at the beginning of the season. Um, and then, like you said, there is that, that uh, piece on the consumer side about, you know, knowing um, where, where these crops are being grown and kind of learning about the different ways to prepare them. Cause we feel like that's really a unique opportunity uh, for people to learn about the diversity and cultural richness that exists in Louisville. And so what, one of the things that we've done as a program is we've worked with some of the farmers to, um, to record some recipes using these different crops that they grow and, um, you know, some of the things that are commonly eaten and prepared in their homes. And so we've made recipe cards that we'll distribute to our, um, our program partners and people that we work with throughout the year, but that the farmers can also take to the market with them, you know, and hand out. So um, it can be used as a conversation starter or just something that people can take home, you know, and prepare for themselves or, um, you know, to try and get a little bit experience with these different, different recipes and different flavors that are here. Yeah. A lot of the, um, I think probably you're aware that a lot of farmers markets are places of a lot of wonderful human interaction. And um, I've been, accompanying some of the international farmers in the markets when customers approach. And what, what happens is a lot of times farmers will have their traditional foods in smaller quantities for sale in the market, or, or they don't even sell them. They just give them as, um, as examples like of things you can consume that have medicinal qualities, et cetera. Um, the other day I was with one of our, uh, the Kachin farm. It's a farmers from, from um, Myanmar from Burma, and um, they have a number of native crops that they they also sell, and that some people recognize who have lived abroad, like water spinach, like roselle or hibiscus leaves, which are very delectable that I've discovered. Um, um, and then you know simple things like sunflower seeds, um, 
I didn't know that sunflower seeds are good for lowering blood pressure, but, but Nang, our, our farmer from Kachin Farm knew, knew that. And she was giving away, giving away sunflower seeds for people to munch on. Uh, normally people would just feed them to their birds. Right. But, um, <laughs> with the husks on and all that, but, um, so yeah, a lot of times I feel like there's beautiful little educational moments where people are exchanging ideas in the markets. Um, and I think that's, it's a really beautiful thing uh, to have that happening in our community. Yeah. The other great marketing thing that we're discovering more and more is um, folks marketing to people in their own community. Um, a huge barrier for farmers selling it, kind of the traditional farmer's market is language and culture, right? If you show up with maybe a little hesitancy to speak English um, or, you know, you're growing foods that maybe look a little foreign or unfamiliar to the more traditional middle and upper class white customer base at many farmers markets, um, you might be a little discouraged, but we have a whole group of successful farmers who sell exclusively to their own cultural communities. Um, which is really, really amazing. Um, this year, one of our farmers in particular is she switched her business plan to growing only a specific variety of corn for the Somali community that she's a part of. Um, she felt that that was more efficient for her time, her labor, and her money because she can harvest it and then go home and sell it to her neighbors. Like there's no Saturday morning commitment. You know, it's all, you know, phone calls and texts to people and that she already knows and is very comfortable with or is just, you know, seeing in her day-to-day -day travels. Um, so that's another amazing support piece that we have um, here just through land accesses that we have some, far some farmers just like here in the U.S. that are growing food to feed many other people. And that's, that's a really, really amazing thing is to see that, that how land access can support not only the specific farmer, but also other people in their communities who still want to have that um, food, food and culture connection, but maybe don't have the time or the space to garden themselves. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. um, how do you think the production has influenced the various vegetable markets across the U.S.? Um, and you can speak specifically to Louisville, um, but I'm thinking along the lines of how it's impacted the farmers' markets, the restaurants, grocery stores, um, where people are purchasing vegetables both raw and prepared? I think there's a lot of room for growth. I mean, but this is true for all small farmers, right? Um, small farmers have a much higher ability to produce things than many restaurants, grocery stores, and other places are necessarily willing to spend. Um, and so I think there's, there's more opportunities for buyers to step in and make a substant more substantial financial commitment um, than what is currently happening. Um, definitely in Louisville, um, I'm fairly confident that that would also be true in other areas of the US. Um, but if anyone has some tips on increasing local food purchasing power, we are ready. <laughs> well, I think a, a big untapped market really, and it requires a lot of groundwork to create those markets or to develop those markets is you know supplying food to ethnic stores. Uh, you know, we have some, immigrant farmers on the outskirts of Louisville who, who have been producing foods that you cannot get otherwise uh, here in, in Louisville, such as chipiling, 
such as different kinds of amaranth and purslane that are that are really well known in the home countries in Central America and, and Southern Mexico, for example. Um, and some farmers are now selling large amounts of those uh, crops to, you know, Mexican bodegas, and they're getting good money for it, you know, and I think I think in some cases there are international farmers in our program who are distributing some sweet potato greens and other crops like that directly to to their communities, you know. Um, and a lot of those crops that people are selling out of their homes are those traditional crops. And again, even outside the cash economy, when you when you try to consider how much food is bartered for other goods and services, mm. that's a very significant economic um, activity as well. And I think. A lot of times it doesn't register in any in any, uh, you know, report, but the barter, the amount of food bartered for goods and services, for example, is, is very significant as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, that's something I hadn't really thought about. Um, you know, I was thinking maybe we go off script here a little bit. Um, and you had mentioned earlier um, about one of the challenges being climate change and just learning about some new crops that can be grown. Um, you know, season extension is really becoming an essential part of production because of um, climate change. I mean, there's significant advantages. And so with your incubator farm program that you've mentioned, are you all starting to use a lot of season extension techniques um, to help expand those seasons and um like what does that look like with the program um go ahead laura i was sure um i we've done several trainings on season extension um we've had gardeners really interested in it and people are slowly starting to implement um i think we've had a couple farm teams maybe last year um used low tunnels to extend the season and grow greens and some other things later into the fall and early winter. Um, so it's kind of, it's taken some time to catch on, but there's definitely that interest there. And I think we're going to continue to see that grow. Um, one, one interesting side note on that topic is that sometimes new farmers, new American farmers don't have, they don't uh, have the preconceived notions of when the last frost is going to be. And oftentimes they will start much earlier growing crops that we would say is foolhardy to do. Some of them had been burned doing that, but some of them had had a lot of good sales of early tomatoes and early summer crops uh, when, when, when the roll of the dice rolled in their favor. But um, I think the, we're, I think a lot of the, there's a, there's a big, right now we're looking at how to, how to increase the amount of uh, plants produced in early spring um, vegetable plants from, you know, flats of vegetables, uh, because it's a big expense for many of the growers who don't have enough time to grow out a lot of their own um, crops, crop seedling. And so that's another uh, look thing we're looking at in terms of um, starting, um, finding a way to maybe create a small business or to have some kind of a cooperative way to produce a lot of the seedlings that people need in the spring. Um, but yeah, the, the season extension is becoming very important and control absolute control of irrigation. And that's, I think one of the big challenges we're facing in Louisville is not only access to land, because we have a huge demand well beyond the amount of land that we have currently available. Uh, and land is always under threat in the urban area for, for development, and that we're seeing loss of some of the community garden spaces for that reason. Uh, the cost of water is high. And so we're facing some of these challenges to try to make, to try to basically allow the boom to continue with the 
the incredible interest and participation of people to produce food in the urban, in the urban and peri-urban setting, you know. What about um, like pests and diseases? Um, it, you know, I, I would assume that it's approached a little bit differently when working with um, refugees. So it, maybe talk about that and maybe what you're learning from working with the refugees as well. Um, Bethany, you can maybe start there and then Stephen. Yeah. So one of the most interesting things that I've noticed over the years is that, and I'm thinking specifically about um, some of the Napoleon Bhutanese crops that um, the bitter melon is one um, and some of the greens that are native to that culture as well that are in plant families that here in Louisville tend to have high um, disease and pest pressure. So a lot of our, we here where we live, we live in a pretty hot, humid environment. So we see a lot of powdery mildew on our cucurbits. Um, We see a lot of bean beetles. Um, We also see a lot of um, harlequin bugs on our mustards. Um, But some of the crops that are in those same plant families that are um, native to Nepal and Bhutan in particular, seem to be more resistant to those diseases. I was talking to a Bhutanese gardener last week who his cucumbers, which he was growing right next to bitter melon, the cucumbers had been totally decimated by a cucumber wilt virus. The bitter melon, which is growing in between it, totally fine. Like no <laughs> disease, no insect issues. Um, and at least for me, like that's a just a, huh, we need to know more, right? As an extension person and I'm more of a researcher um, from that standpoint um, is certainly one thing that I think is an opportunity, um, particularly for folks who are growing crops um, to learn um, about those things and think about, you know, how do we switch our production as, you know, when I say our, I say like, you know, white American us um, to, to maybe incorporate more of these more naturally disease resistant plants. Um, so that's one, that's one kind of cool thing that I've noticed. The other thing is that, you know, if you're growing in a new environment, you're also learning about new diseases and new pests. Um, and so that's, that's always a challenge is working with, with anyone, truly with any gardener, no matter, um, where they are from originally is, um, disease and pest identification. Um, the really nice thing about that though, is that, Um, Most of the folks in our international community are very excited about organic agriculture. That's what they're familiar with, um, which is amazing um, in terms of environmental impact. Um, And in some ways, a lot of our international farmers are early adopter of more environmentally friendly and sustainable um, pest management practices. And and the um, American gardeners tend to learn from those folks because they see all this success and are like, well, what are they doing? How can I do that? Um, so that's been a, a cool success in more of the community garden setting. Um, Steven, do you want to maybe talk about the incubator farm? Because that has a different whole world of pest management. So, yeah, in the incubator farm, we have like 14 plots that are pretty sizable uh, plots and uh, well irrigated and all that. And uh, But we have because people want to hold on to their same plots each year and tend to grow the same crops, as well as uh, big areas of corn for their own home consumption, that we've had a buildup of, of insect disease in the past years, especially in the mid-season. And a lot of farmers have, were given up on the fall, doing fall vegetables because of the insect pressures. But I think this year, we, we kind of had a lot of emphasis on that in trainings over the winter. And we talked about 
and started implementing a preventative neem spraying, you know, every two weeks. I don't think it got sprayed more than twice during the middle, but it was a good time that we sprayed. And I think it, it improved the insect situation greatly. So, I mean, that would be our approach. Another approach would be to try to do collective crop rotation as a whole farm, basically. Uh, but that requires a lot of cooperation, a lot of um, buy-in from each of the individual growers. Um, so we, we, we haven't reached that point yet, but um, we're, you know, I think any community garden has that challenge where people are many plots, people holding on to their same plots and growing the same crops in those plots every year after year. And to add to that, I think, um, you know, people have different levels of pest management. Some people are way more hands-on and, um, you know, out there frequently and scouting and treating, um, whereas other farmers are a little bit more hands-off. But, you know, someone who's more hands-off, their their plot or insects in their plot can slowly start to uh, creep into other folks' plots, too. So it's one of the challenges of growing together in a community setting, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure everybody's learning from everybody when there's different philosophies there involved. So yeah, Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Um, Well, I wanted to talk maybe a little bit just about how like university extension and other industry can support these um, farmers. Um, You know, you've talked some about how much we can learn from them. And I, I think there is a lot of value there. Um, But, you know, I, I think um, ending on this note of how we can help support them um, would be really great. So maybe we can hear from each of you. Um, Laura, do you want to start? Sure. I, I think the biggest thing is really just acknowledging that um, international farmers and growers are there um, in a lot of our communities um, and being intentional about connecting with them. And I think what that means is providing language access. Um, both through interpreters and translated materials when, when possible. Um, and also thinking about it um, like from a, the cultural perspective of, um, you know, going at it from maybe a typical U.S. or Western point of view with training materials or meetings um, is not going to always be effective. And that's something that we've really learned um, in our work and continue to adapt and modify Um, We've been working on adapting several um, materials from the extension office to be more um, to be more simple, as well as translated into different languages. But um, and then also just the way we approach meetings and trainings instead of, you know, standing in front of a room teaching off a PowerPoint. um, We try and be more aware that, you know, everyone who has come to the United States through the refugee resettlement program has experienced some sort of trauma. Right. Um, so we make sure that whenever we're, we're working with people, our, our methods are trauma-informed and linguistically appropriate. Um, and so that's really a core tenet of what we do. And so I would certainly encourage that for um, folks throughout the country as they look to reach out and um, work with people of different, different cultures and nationalities as well. Yeah, I'd like to add the idea of, I mean, in terms of help from instance, people with resources, um, I think one of the big challenges that remain to us, it's constant, I don't see it ending, is is the need for more land available, uh, is the need for support in terms of resources, of water and uh, other logistical resources. Um, You know, this is, um, we're facing, you know, humanity is facing really uh, very severe crises uh, with pandemic, with with hunger, with evictions, with all kinds of economic um, 
catastrophes, right? And I think that there's a shift in people's understanding of how important it is to have local producers close by and able to feed the community, you know? So I think using some kind of big vision picture, I think is important in terms of saying, look, private land, land needs to be used for the common good as well as just private good, right? And so I think the idea that, I think a lot of people are awakening to that and are willing to loan their land or to find other arrangements to make their land available to producers who need to have access to land. So I, th I think that's a big one. Um, if corporations can come up with resources, no strings attached, so we can get some of that, that's fine, you know, but I think a lot of people of goodwill who have extra land might consider how, how that land can, can be used for the common good, you know, for a greater good. Um, so I think that's a key issue. And for, you know, our organization, some of our organizations here in Louisville are part of the, what we call the food sovereignty movement. And food sovereignty means culturally appropriate foods available, uh, farmers producing in the way they think is best to produce um, and by their own, with their own resources and with support from the local community, the local city, et cetera. So I think that politicians, corporations, people with land uh, for their own good interest in, their own best interest in the future might consider ways that they can support um, greater productivity. Um, you know, the smaller the farm or garden, the more intensive and the more productive it is. So we can't think that small producers are not a significant, very significant part of feeding the community. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with both what Laura and Stephen said. And um, from the position of cooperative extension, we need to think about the future of farmers in the U.S. is our international community. They're the folks coming here with the most experience, the most knowledge, the most skill, and the willingness to put in the time, the hours um, to do all of that. So as an extension service, we really need to shift our audience focus to service those individuals, you know, doing things like helping new American, you know, international growers connect with land and credit to buy land, to pay for the water, to do all those things access to help them navigate the American culture, langu language, um, moving resources into more culturally appropriate formats, both for education, but also materials to take home, um, providing language access for folks to be able to move through those things. Um, we have a pretty complicated agriculture system, um, but we have an amazing number of people here in the U.S. with untapped potential to grow things. And as an extension service, we need as we need to be tapping into that resource and helping connect folks um, and really change our mindset on that front. Absolutely. It looks like we have a question about um, a list of common plants. And so maybe what I might do is reach out to you all and um, in the show notes, um, we can get that information. Um, so what or because common plants are very culturally specific. So if that person's still around and can um, maybe note what cultures, that would be very helpful for probably all of us. Southeast Asian. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, because that's, that's kind of the wonderful thing about um, all of our gardeners is that folks have, you know, just like us, right? Everyone has their own food traditions and they're, they're varied even region by region within a similar country. Um, so we will be able to talk to the folks who are originally from some of that. I see Stephen writing some things in our chat yeah. now, just off the top of his head. Um, yeah. But just something that, 
you know, for everyone as you're like interacting with international growers in a market and stuff, please ask them questions about where they're from. Not only, you know, originally, but um, you know, where in there, what's the climate like? Things like that, because um, even from us, like meeting people, we work with a large group of folks from Somalia, but there's a great um, just climate diversity within Somalia. So we have farmers who are living in Eastern Somalia who experience growing very differently and their patterns very differently from folks who are living in Western Somalia or Northern Somalia. Um, then that's just one example, right? And we we know this, it's the US, right? Growing in Kentucky is different than growing in Michigan or Nebraska. Um, so ask ask folks questions. People love to talk about gardening. Um, don't be afraid to do it. Yeah, that's very good advice. And Stephen, thank you for adding comments about different um, specific crops. Um, but we will get some resources and put those in the show notes. So um, I think that's a great way to wrap up today. And I, I really appreciate all the thoughts and uh, comments that you guys have shared today. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of an outro and then um, we'll wrap up the conversation. This show is put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a group of extension educators and researchers from across the Great Lakes and Midwest regions, sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. We broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern, 11.30 Central every Wednesday from the first week of March to the first week of September, and we interview farmers, researchers, and others about topics relevant to vegetable growers. And since it's August and you already have pumpkin spice lattes on your mind, next week the Vegetable Beat will be talking pumpkins. Join Ben Whirling of Michigan State University Extension as he interviews the pumpkin duo Nathan Johanning of University of Illinois Extension and Brad Burgerford of the Ohio State University Extension about how to be the pumpkins and pumpkins you were meant to be. I'd like to ask our listeners to also do the Vegetable Beat team a huge favor and fill out our seasonal survey. You'll find a link and all the show's information at glveg.net slash listen. I hope you all have a great week. We'll talk to you next week, same time, same place. And Laura and Bethany and Steven, thank you guys so much for sharing today. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. All right. You guys have a great week. You too. Thanks.